With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to A's Plus, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the Oakland A's and Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Chronicle beat writer Susan Slusser, and today we're joined by A's legendary travel secretary, Mickey Morabito, who came to Oakland with Billy Martin. He tells us about working with the volatile Martin, about his hopes that Martin will one day be in the Baseball Hall of Fame, and he also talks about how team travel has changed over the years and the frustrations of the Major League Baseball schedule. On the Player's Choice segment, Daniel Gossett talks about his recent favorite movies, and instead of Shea Plus this week, we have Slus Plus. John Shea is on assignment, so I am winging it monologue style. Today on the A's Plus podcast, we welcome in the A's traveling secretary, Mickey Morabito, who has been with the club for how many years now, Mickey, you've, you've been here? This will be 38 years. Came out in 1980 with Billy Martin from New York. Wow, that's amazing. Um, now, Mickey is known uh, in baseball circles very well for, of course, for having those years with Billy Martin. But back in those days, you were the, the PR guy initially, correct? Yeah, when I first came over here, there Charlie Finley still owned the club in 1980, so there was really no front office. So he told me that when I came over, he told Billy that I would have to do both jobs. I'd have to do the PR and the uh, traveling secretary. So I figured, you know, leaving New York and even doing two jobs here was probably just as much as doing one job with the Yankees that back then. Um, what was it like working for Finley? You know what? Be honest with you, he was never around. We hardly we saw him opening day, and, and I saw him in Chicago. Um, and it was it was funny because you know we had just come from New York where we had an overbearing you know hands-on owner in Steinbrenner, and Billy used to bitch and moan about I can't get a hold of my owner. He wanted to make player moves or something, and I would look at him and say, Billy, we just left Steinbrenner, who was all over you all the time. Hey, why don't you just enjoy an owner that you can't find? <laughs> now you and Billy were very close. Uh, obviously, Billy had his occasional problems on the field and off the field. As a A's PR guy, and also he being his close friend, how challenging could that be at times? I think it was challenging from time to time, but back then it was a whole different landscape for the media. We had the writers that traveled with us and saw a lot of the things that Billy did, and I was able to squelch a lot of things um, at the time. And then the next day, Billy would be fine, and everybody would kind of forget about it. So, I mean, we, we didn't have, you know, texting right away, deadlines, internet, everything right now. I mean, guys basically at 10 o'clock at night, shove it, close their, their uh, typewriters, and that was it. There was nothing they can do after that. So a lot of stories died because of that. But uh, it was interesting being with Billy and a lot of things that off the field stuff, on the field stuff. But... I think the bottom line with Billy, and I think started, some of this is starting to come out right now, just what a great game manager he was. And uh, I basically enjoyed the vitality of being around him, and it was fun to watch. 
Yeah, he was really a baseball genius in a lot of ways, wasn't he? I know you've talked a lot about the fact that, that you think he should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I know a lot of other people feel the same way. What was it like to see the, the strategy on a day-to-day -day sort of basis? It was incredible. You can ask guys, people that managed against him. Talk to Tony LaRusso the years he was with the White Sox, managing against him. And he would look in the other dugout, Billy was tapped and said, hey, I got you on that one. And um, But just watching him manage the game, what bothered me is that Billy got out of rap that either he can only manage young teams or only manage old teams. But if you look at his history, when he first started, I mean, he had, a, he had an old team in Detroit, he had a young team in Minnesota, he had a young team in Texas, he had a veteran team in New York, came to Oakland with a young team. And the first and second year he was there, he turned him into winners right away. Unfortunately, he burned himself out after two or three years. But, uh, you know, the rap that he can only manage one type of team was so wrong because he adapted to the players he had. I mean, in 1980, when he came out to Oakland, I mean, he had Wayne Gross, who you and I can beat him to first base, stealing home. Double steals, guys falling down at first base to draw the throw and then get and the guy stealing home. Just the, the different things that he did during a game to try and get a run or outsmart the other team. It was incredible to watch. He is sort of famously loyal as a friend. What was it like just being his friend? Uh, if you were his friend, I mean, you were in his little inner circle and he, you were like golden with him. He was very loyal to people. When he first came out here, I mean, people were calling him for jobs. I mean, if you look at 1980, that first year here, I mean, Willie Horton was in our camp that year, a guy he had in Detroit um, who was looking for a job, and Billy gave it to him. Uh, but he, he took care of people as best he could. Uh, but, yeah, very loyal to the players that, uh, that were good to him, and he wanted to be basically loyal to them also. What was it like going out with him after games? Because I think he probably became something of a target, uh, especially in uh, you know in sort of the nightlife establishments. Yeah, I think a lot of it came when after managing in Texas and in the Miller Lite commercials where he had the cowboy persona and everybody wanted to take a shot at him. I mean, he'd be in a bar, and there were times we'd get up and walk away, but there was always some guy you know having a few too many drinks. Hey, there's Billy Martin. I can get him. He thinks he's a tough cowboy. I'm going to go over and show him and. Yeah, unfortunately, that was the nature of being in bars. People drink and get drunk and act stupid and do stupid things. So, I mean, there were times where he was smart enough to know that, hey, we got to get out of here. Now, obviously, he winds up going back to New York and you stayed in Oakland. Was that a tough decision for you to, to just remain on the West Coast and, and stay here all the, since, really since then? Yeah, I mean, that, that is another example of how good Billy was that, uh, yeah, he basically wanted me to go back with him. It was a period of time where there was a, there was an opening in the PR department. I'm going to say it was between like Ken Nigro and Joe Safety or something. But there was a, there was a, there was an opening, and uh, and at first he wanted me to go. I mean, he put a lot of pressure on Cleet Boyer and Jackie Moore, two of the coaches that he had with us, to go with him also. And uh, I really did not want to go back to New York, even though I'm from there, my family's there. I just really wanted to stay in Oakland. I was more comfortable there, and I was at his house for Christmas and uh, got a little melancholy and he started telling me, so you know what, you, you should stay in Oakland. The house is like you here, you got a good thing going. I think you should just stay here. I drove home that night, I was so relieved that he didn't put the pressure on me to go to New York because he got actually very upset with uh, Cleet Boyer and Jackie Moore for not going with him. Um, and he was actually mad at them for about a year because he felt that they weren't loyal, that they actually stayed, they wanted to stay in Oakland also. But now he took me off the hook and that 
you know, it kind of showed me how he had, he had feelings for me and what I want to do in my career. So it was best for me to stay here. Uh, it must have just been amazing sometimes going out on the town with him and his little group when it included guys like Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford and guys like, you probably have a million stories that you probably can't share with us, but what was it like just like uh, going out, especially in New York with those guys? Oh, it was great. I mean, I used to love Old Timers Day weekend. And, uh, and after the game, you know, we, we'd go somewhere and it would be, it would be Billy, people like, uh, like, you know, Sid Mantle and Whitey Ford, guys like Hank Bauer were in town and we'd all go somewhere and it was just fun. I would just stay in the background, listen to these guys tell stories and everything. But, uh, no, it was, uh, it was, it was a treat. It was uh, part of growing up in that situation in baseball where, um, yeah, I got a, got indoctrinated to a lot of things at an early age uh, watching those guys. It was yeah, fun. That's amazing. So um, as the traveling secretary, obviously you've been with teams such a long time. That the, the way you guys travel is really different from, from when you started. When you did start, what, what was uh, sort of the basics? Uh, how, how does it differ from, from what you do now? Oh, back then, teams took commercial flights. Uh, I remember my first two years in Oakland, my first year in Oakland, 1980, all the flights were booked when I got here because I didn't get here. I left spring training in in, uh, in February when Billy got the job, and uh, I went through all these commercial flights. I changed a couple of them, but we flew commercial flights. We would get up like they do in AAA now. We'd get up at seven o'clock in the morning here in Dallas and take an early flight from here to Cleveland and play that night. Uh, and you know the players still had to fly first class. So obviously, on most planes, weren't enough first class seats, so you had to buy three seats for two. Uh, for the players, and that qualified as a first-class uh, situation for them. But now uh, that's gone by the wayside. Nobody travels commercial anymore. It's all, it's all charters, and that's made you know all of our jobs a lot easier. Yeah, it, you also had to deal with a lot of player requests and like last-minute changes and so, all sorts of stuff. How, how would you? What are sort of the other parts of your job that maybe people don't know about? Well, just like here, in the last couple of days, we've made like four player moves. So you got, you're always kind of on call, flying guys in and out. Today, we flew Josh Fegley in here, and then tomorrow I'm going to fly Josh Lucas out of here. The other night, Hendricks and Blackburn came in. So, I mean, it's every day. You're like, you're like a travel agent. You're just moving bodies in and out all the time. Uh, but, you know, it's you just stay on top of it, and you're making changes with the hotel, with the you know, rooming list, the passenger manifest, and everything. movement happening now nobody really likes traveling there's always seems like there's always complications how much do you have to deal with um, players and other people you know complaining about things you know our guys are pretty good I really think our travels pretty good I mean we use a an all first-class plane that Mark Cuban owns and he designed for the Dallas Mavericks and they have it during the basketball season I have it during the summer so um, you know that is a nice plus to have a plane like that um, and, you know, the hotels, you know, you do your best you can trying to be a first-class hotel, but you're never going to satisfy everybody. There's always someone's going to complain about something, but you deal with it, but you just try to do the best you can to put these guys in first-class situations, you know, in our hotels, in our travel, and, uh, you know, our organization's been pretty good about, you know, my budgeting to, to spend it to do it in a first-class way for the team, so that's been helpful. Have you ever had any real travel disasters? Would anything jump out at you over the years where, um, you know, either something didn't show up or got somebody got left behind, anything like that? I don't think I've ever left anybody hot behind, but, <laughs> I mean, there were times where, you know, mechanical breakdowns on airplanes. Uh, 
where um, I remember one time when Milwaukee was in the, in the American League, we had a plane breakdown uh, in Milwaukee, and I couldn't get another charter in, and I had to put us on a, and the only commercial flight I could find was out of Chicago, because there wasn't a lot of service out of Milwaukee back then. So uh, I was able to get enough seats on a flight later that night out of Chicago to get us home. Um, and I, I felt real good about getting all this happening. And, and back then, believe it or not, in Milwaukee, we actually used the city transit buses for our buses. And so when I went down to tell the guy we had to go to O'Hare, he said, well, I can't, uh, I can't drive on the freeway all the way to Chicago on these buses. We're not allowed on the freeway. So I said, oh my God, now I'm here on a Sunday afternoon, I'm trying to find a charter bus company to get buses to take the team to Chicago to catch this commercial flight. So things like that. One time we were in Cleveland and we had a mechanical breakdown and we didn't think the plane was going to be able to go to the next morning. And I'm on the phone trying to find hotel rooms to check back in. The hotel we checked out of, the angels followed us in and checked in. So they took our block of rooms. That hotel was sold out. Ended up finding, you know, 10 rooms here, 10 rooms there. But we gutted it out. The mechanic was able to figure out what was wrong. We got the plane fixed and we were able to take off. But yeah, sometimes you just sit there and you, I, I go, oh my God, I don't have a plane and I don't have hotels. What am I going to do with these guys? <laughs> I mean, the Yankees just went through that situation in Washington where they couldn't leave until the next morning. Guys either stuffed on the plane or stuffed on benches in the airport. Uh, so those are things that happen. You're, you're out of your control, but you just do your best to try and make things work. Now, you and I spend a lot of time during the baseball season talking about the baseball schedule. I understand that no team ever has a schedule that they're thoroughly satisfied with, but you are uh, and the other West Coast teams, but particularly you guys in Seattle, are in a situation where the travel is just tougher than it is uh, for other teams. Uh, how, would, uh, how would you sort of characterize the, the A's and Mariners travel? It is absolutely worse because we're the furthest from anywhere. You look at all the other five divisions, and the majority of those divisions, four to five teams are probably hour flights, and they go there three times. Uh, the American League West has two teams in the state of Texas, and one's a three and a half hour flight, one's a four hour flight, and we gotta go there three times. We've asked them in the past to try and at least give us Houston and, and Dallas on the same trip. We did have it this year, I do have it once next year, but uh, it's the city parents get a little bit out of whack. This schedule this year is probably one of the better schedules we've ever had, because we played the National League West in Italy, we had the Dodgers and Angels on the first on the same trip. Our East Coast trip had good city pairings. Like our last trip, we had um, we had New York, Boston, and Toronto, all short flights. So I'd rather have the long haul out and just puddle jump in the middle and have the long haul back and then running all over the country and everything. But that's those are the detriment that you have playing in the West. And uh, it's just like I said, the, the best thing we can ask for is to just give us good pairings of cities when we go, so that we're not jumping all over the place. Now, I, I know you enjoy going out to a nice meal in most cities, um, and in fact, most of the writers like to go to you for rec restaurant recommendations. Do you have a favorite restaurant in the Bay Area you recommend, and what's your favorite place uh, all time in the country? Wow, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I would say, like in the Bay Area, um, it's funny, like, there's, I've had places that have closed that I, that I liked a lot. There was an Italian restaurant in Jack London Square called Il Pescatore that I went to for years and they just closed. But there's a, there's a restaurant in Alameda that opened up called Trabaco that I really like. It's in the South Shore Center there and they do a nice job. The chef was an executive chef at Il Fornaio. He opened up uh, two or three Il Fornaio restaurants. And he just wanted to move his family from LA to the Bay Area down to Alameda and wanted to open up his own restaurant. And he did. I mean, it was really good. And, uh, and uh, you know, so that's probably right now my go-to place. 
good place. I, I've, I've gone there for New Year's Eve, then it's a couple of years. And, yeah, I like that. Um, see, on the road, that's, right, that's, that's, a, that's, a good, that's, a, that's a really good question. One of my favorite restaurants is in Baltimore, a place called the Prime Rib. It's been there forever. And it's just a classic old steakhouse, but I've also had crab, fresh fish, and everything. Real clubby looking, dark leather booths, a piano player, kind of a speakeasy atmosphere. Was a, what was a big favorite of Bill King's, I recall, too. I've always thought that you could easily write like a sort of a national restaurant guide, the Mickey Morabito Guide to the American League. Well, and now with the National League places, too, you probably do all of baseball. Um, any sort of surprises to look forward to for next year's schedule? Well, the biggest thing that I'm so pumped up about on this deck, we're playing the National League Central next year, and we are going to get the Cubs uh, as one of our road opponents. Sunday night, we'll play at Wrigley on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, have an off day on Thursday, and play the White Sox Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So one week in one of America's great cities, uh, don't have to change hotels, don't have to fly between cities, it's like perfect, it's like one of the greatest things I've had on the schedule for years. Great for you, great for the writers. Um, in the old days, for the players, that one might, might have been a little bit of a killer. I think you might have had too many guys going out until four in the morning. Yeah, I think that would have been, we had, a, we had guys checking into Betty Ford when we got home. <laughs> wonderful note to end things on. Mickey Morabito, thanks so much for being our guest on Ace Plus. Thank you for having me. We welcome A's starter Daniel Gossett into A's Plus to talk about uh, some of his off-the-field interests on the Player's Choice segment. Daniel, um, you were mentioning to me that you're a movie guy. Tell us about some of the movies that you've seen recently. Uh, well, we uh, recently had an off day, so I got to see Black Panther and Infinity War back to back. So that was a really good day for me. Uh, you know, get to relax and then, you know, get lost in the Marvel Universe a little bit. So it was a good time. Have you seen all the Marvel movies? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, um, I like to stay up to date just in case a new one comes out. I'm up to date and can go see it in theaters. So you had to see Black Panther first then, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you kind of... You do a little research and see which ones you really need to see. And, uh, hey, babe. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, so I got uh, got locked into that, and um, you know I had to go see that one first. So I was pretty excited to get everything in order and let it work out. What are your favorites um, from that whole Marvel universe? What have your favorite movies been so far? Um, I like all the Iron Man movies. I like how he, um, you know, I, I'm a big Robert Downey Jr. fan. So, uh, so that. I guess just the way the way he plays that role is very good, and um, I'm a big fan of the new Spider-Man's as well. So uh, the the new I'm not sure the actor's name, but he's, he's doing a really good job with it. And, uh, Tom Holland. Yeah, Tom yeah. Holland. Yeah, really good job yeah. with it. I like kind of went with a younger actor, so I think he's doing a real good job. And um, obviously, you're an athlete. Are there things that you like to do off the field athletically? I like to golf, but uh, not very good. But uh, I think it's a good time to just relax and go out and you know be with myself or be with friends and uh, you know just kind of shoot the ball around, shoot the breeze, and you know relax a little bit. Uh, do you have a handicap at all? No, absolutely not. No, no, I'm not near not near that good. No. Have you have you played with any of your current teammates or coaching staff? Um, I actually played with uh, Ryan Christensen. 
We actually had an off day in Double A when he was my manager in Double A. We had an off day in Tulsa. We actually played 36 holes and then went bowling afterwards. Man, we had a, it was an absolute blast. It was a good time. Did you win any portion of that stuff that day? No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. No, um, we actually had a pretty big group out, and and Rhino is actually a scratch golfer. I mean, it, it, it's not surprising. He's good at everything he does. It's it's almost frustrating, but um, but yeah, it's it's fun to just get out there and. Uh, and a guy that you is your manager, so you obviously respect the crap out of him on the field. And then to, to see him kind of, you know, just get a new aspect, a new relationship of kind of an off-the-field relationship and get to hang out with a guy that you, know, you can learn stuff from in baseball, obviously, but just in life in general. So you weren't just, like, letting him win because he was your manager? Oh, no, I was going after him. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had uh, – we were playing uh, – I think it was called Scotch, where you play your best ball and then, uh, you know – you alternate shots after that but he wasn't on my team so I was going after him but no dice he's good that's great well thank you Daniel Gossett we appreciate you joining us for Player's Choice thank you I appreciate it hi and welcome to a segment we are calling Slus Plus this week because John Shea is on assignment so Shea Plus is uh, going to be shelved until next week. I figured I'd just come on and talk about the A's last week because it was very interesting, uh, particularly when it came to the Major League Draft. On Monday, the A's really kind of broke precedence and took a high-profile national quarterback, Kyler Murray of Oklahoma, with the number nine overall pick. Now, this is uh, something that we've seen before, two sport athletes being taken in the draft, but usually it's in later rounds. Uh, because there's the obvious chance of injury risk. Uh, Kyler Murray, much as many other two-sport athletes, is going back to Oklahoma in the fall to play football. The A's have agreed to it. I think that's the only way they would have had a chance to sign him. They do anticipate signing him, uh, by the way. It sounds like, uh, you know, certainly there were conversations ahead of time. But, uh, yes, there's injury risk. There's always the chance that like Russell Wilson or John Elway, that he plays a season of two of minor league baseball, uh, which he'll do starting next year, uh, and then decide to opt for the NFL. So uh, there are numerous risks uh, associated with it, and using your ninth pick on somebody that's risky is outside the box thinking. We all know that that's what the A's are known for. Uh, they like to zig when everyone else zags. They, they don't want to follow the pack. Clearly what we're seeing here is sort of the new money ball, the optimizing uh, market inefficiencies, is athletes. The A's have uh, talked for the last year, maybe two years, about becoming more athletic, uh, particularly in the minor leagues. We've seen them do that uh, starting last year in the draft, uh, certainly with some of the trades that the A's made last season um, in uh, the Sonny Gray deal, uh, the Sean Doolittle, Ryan Madsen deal, uh, they're just, you know, they're they're looking for guys who can uh, potentially be multi-tool type players. Now, uh, there are always risks involved. The college pitcher strategy the A's employed for a very long time is something of a safe route. It's something a lot of other teams do. So this was bold, certainly. Um, opinion from fans seems kind of split. Um, and I think it's the one thing that's safe to say is I think we will all be watching Oklahoma football uh, with a pretty close eye this fall uh, and hoping that Kyler Murray uh, doesn't get hurt. And I, I think we'd all like to see him have a good season uh, and look forward to seeing him on a baseball field next year. The A's believe he has a ton of upside, 
because he hasn't played that much baseball, but he's shown a lot of skill at Cape Cod League in particular. Uh, and if if and when he starts focusing entirely on baseball, the, the A's feel like kind of the sky is the limit for him. So uh, next year, uh, I anticipate we will be spending a lot of time watching and writing about uh, Kyler Murray. Now, the other uh, interesting thing that happened this week was Sean Manea made his first start of June after a terrible May. His ERA was over seven in May. Uh, his April, of course, was off the charts great. Through the no-hitter, his ERA was 1.03. Uh, so what are we looking at with Sean Manaya? We've talked many times on the Shea Plus segment uh, that confidence, uh, attitude, sort of trust in himself is so important for Sean Manaya. It seemed particularly in April that working with Jonathan Lucroy uh, was really beneficial. Uh, he was getting the most out of Manaya. Uh, and then he, in April, you know, he, he has not been throwing quite as hard as he did in past years, but that was the same in April. Uh, in May, he wasn't quite getting the, the late movement that he sometimes gets. Uh, his stuff just was not as sharp. His first start in June was a little bit of a mixed bag. He only gave up two runs. Uh, he gave up at least four runs in every one of his uh, May starts, but he only went five and a third innings. and. Of his 90 pitches, uh, only 48 were strikes. So, you know, you really want to see a better ball strike ratio. He was a little bit effectively wild. And, uh, you know, he said he didn't have his best stuff. Bob Melvin said he didn't have his best stuff. What they both liked was the fact that he kind of gutted it out. He grinded his way through. He minimized the scoring, minimized the damage, kept the A's in the game. When you don't have your best stuff, uh, that's certainly what coaches and managers would like to see. But uh, I've got to say, uh, the jury is still out on which Shamanaya the A's have right now. Uh, will he get back to his April form? Did he revert to some sort of mean? Uh, is, is he an ace of a staff? Is he more of sort of a three or a four starter? Uh, he's left-handed. His stuff is phenomenal. When he gets it together, he can be absolutely dominating. I think that's the guy that the A's have. Uh, he just needs to get back on track and, and figure a few things out. I think he will be fine, uh, but as uh, all you listeners know, projecting pitchers uh, can be a very, very tough proposition. There are only a handful of elite guys who you know what you're going to get from year to year, and you know certainly injuries are always a major factor. The A's are seeing that again. Daniel Gossett now, the latest A's pitcher to go on the disabled list, uh, he has got uh, flexor tendon strain, that's, uh, uh, excuse me, a flexor muscle strain, which is a little different, a little less alarming. Uh, initially they said an elbow strain, uh, they're sort of all related. And um, you know, so anything like that is always a little bit of a concern. Sometimes those things can wind up leading to Tommy John surgery. The A's feel like a couple of month, a couple of weeks of inactivity, he'll be back on the mound. Uh, will work his way back in. The good news is the A's are just about to get Paul Blackburn off the DL. He is going to go into that spot in the rotation. Blackburn was so terrific in his uh, five weeks with the A's last year before he was hurt. Uh, what well, different injury was hit by a uh, hit by a batted ball? Uh, he it will be really fun to see him again. Of course, he's local. We always like that. He's from Brentwood, and uh, he, it uh, his spring was cut short, obviously by the by his forearm strain. 
but he was going to be a member of the, that opening day rotation, no doubt about it. So he's back to where he should be. He'll be on a limited pitch count probably his first couple of times out. The A's have done very well in sort of uh, heavy bullpen games this year. So it's uh, very nice to see Paul Blackburn back. That's a plus. But it is a little concerning that the A's have uh, so many starting pitching injuries. They opened the season, of course, with our, having already lost Gerald Cotton and A.J. Puck. And Andrew Triggs is currently on the DL. He is throwing a bullpen session when the A's get back on Thursday. Then they're going to decide whether to send him out on a re- rehab assignment uh, or ease his way into a rehab assignment. Brett Anderson is now playing catch. He's slowly getting extended out to longer distances, uh, and then he'll be off the mound uh, fairly soon. But uh, you know that the A's really need to have a better run of health here with their starting pitchers because uh, we know what the offense can do, particularly on the road. Uh, they're uh, back to scoring a little bit more on the road than they are at home. That's a, another inconsistency. But uh, we've discussed since the beginning of the season, it's a young team. They're going to have a lot of ups, a lot of downs. I think that uh, just above 500 would be a really nice season for the A's. That's about where they've been all all season. Uh, their inconsistencies are really to be expected. I think they have probably a nice run in them somewhere where they might make things interesting. And, uh, you know, here we are in early June, and they're starting to regain guys from the DL. And, uh, well, as uh, we get sort of the halfway part point of the season the next few weeks, I think we'll have a better idea what we're looking at. Next week, we will welcome back John Shea for Shea Plus. But uh, today, that's it for Slus Plus. This show is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Our theme music is The Third by Anatech, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. The show is produced by me and Fernando Diaz. For more A's coverage, you can follow me on Twitter at Susan Slusser. Check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com.